Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 88, Death Eternal. Well, as I record this uh, intro and monologue, I'm nervous and I'm excited uh, in a good way for the debate that I'm having in about an hour with Joshua Whips from ChoosingHats.com, otherwise known as Razor's Kiss. He blogs at Razor'sKiss.net. This promises to be a long debate, something like over three hours. Um, The first episode, uh, this one that you're listening to now, I'll release shortly after the debate is over, uh, and it will contain part one's opening statements and first rebuttals. Um, I'll try not to make you wait too long, maybe a couple of days, for the uh, for episode 89, which will contain the first round of cross-examination as well as our second rebuttals. And then, again, I'll try not to make you wait too long for uh, episode 90, which will contain the second rebuttal, or sorry, the second round of cross-examination, our closing arguments, as well as uh, questions sent in uh, to D.D. Warren, our moderator, from listeners. Um, so I apologize for making you wait for <laughs> several days to hear the entire thing. Uh, I may consider changing my mind you know, after the debate is finished and, and publish them all together. I don't know, but uh, that's my plan as for now, and there's a reason for that. It has to do with the way that iTunes and Zune and stuff like that, uh, podcatchers, download uh, recent episodes. Now, despite the length of the debate, we're not going to get into everything. Uh, John Joshua is not going to have the opportunity, I don't think, to uh, sufficiently address everything that I'll be arguing. Neither will I have uh, sufficient time to address everything that Joshua will argue and has argued up until today at his blog. But I do plan on addressing, um, first and foremost, what seems to me to be the biggest challenges that Joshua has raised uh, leading up to this debate, the nature of God, the nature of death, the nature of the atonement. And I plan on getting into that in my first rebuttal. Uh, So chances are that you'll hear that in this episode and then we'll uh, and then I'm going to wing it a little bit more uh, from there but anything that we don't have time to get to during the course of the debate I'm sure that you'll get to um see us discuss it further, not necessarily with one another, but, uh, but you know, on our own at our uh, respective blogs. Um, now, I'm confident uh, that the most pertinent issues will get addressed during the debate, and my prayer, as I've said in previous episodes, is that uh, the truth of God's word will be made very clear, that God will work to uh, open minds and hearts, whether the, whether that's uh, whether the whether the minds and hearts that need opening are mine and other annihilationists, or whether the minds and hearts that need opening are uh, Joshua and other um, traditionalists. Um, now, I have no doubt uh, that annihilationism is true and that it's the um, biblical view of final punishment. I'm certain of that. Uh, however, as I mentioned last episode, I'm open to the possibility that uh, that I'm wrong. Um, that's not an expression of doubt. That's an expression of humility and a recognition that, unlike God and his word, I am fallible. Uh, I'm prone to error. Uh, and because of that, my prayer is that uh, whether Joshua is right or whether I am right, God will make the truth of our position, the truth of the biblical view of final punishment, uh, evident during this debate. And um, I hope that you will keep an open mind and that you will test what each of us say in light of uh, the holy and in- inerrant, infallible word of God. 
Uh, now, one brief announcement that I want to make before we get into the debate, before we play the promo that I have for uh, in my promo rotation and get into the debate, uh, is that I want to announce the launch, or very soon launch, of RethinkingHell.com. Um, this uh, is a group that started out on Facebook, and they've, uh, they're in the process of launching a website that will include uh, a blog and a podcast that I'll be contributing to. Uh, in fact, I've got uh, several conditionalist authors uh, and theologians lined up to be interviewed on the show. Uh, now, this is really good news for two groups of you listening. M one of you is really sick and tired of hearing me talk about this in my podcast and reading about it at my blog. Uh, you want to not think about this or, you know, maybe you're you know, confident that this issue has been settled and so you don't want to continue to hear about it uh, here at The Apologetics. And for this group and for that group of you, um, this is really good news because I'll be able to... Continue to talk about it somewhere else, and you don't have to visit that website if you uh, if you don't want to. Uh, and here at this podcast and blog, you know, we'll focus primarily on a variety of other issues. But but for another group of you, uh, that group of you, whether you side with me on this issue or whether you side with my opponent, um, you maybe int you're interested in this topic and you want to read more and you want to read and listen to more than just what I have to say on the topic. Um, this is going to be great because I won't be the only contributor to RethinkingHell.com. Um, in fact, just as one you know one name worth mentioning is Dr. Glenn Peoples. He'll be contributing periodically to that uh, blog as well. And in fact, I've got uh, I'm lined up to interview him uh, at some point, probably in August or so. Uh, so I, I don't know. We they planned on launching the website today. Uh, that is. Saturday, June 16th. Uh, I don't know if it will be ready by the time this debate is published, but it will be soon. So I would encourage you to uh, periodically check in at RethinkingHell.com and uh, mark it in your favorites. Well, anyway, I guess that's uh, me blabbering long enough. Uh, I apologize for my stunted speech. Like I said, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> um, but in any case, uh, let's go ahead and pray, uh, play the next promo in my rotation for uh, Jim Wallace's Please Convince Me podcast. Well, how about it get going? Your show's almost on. Get ready to jump into the jury box. It's time for the Please Convince Me podcast. The only apologetics podcast hosted by a cold case homicide detective. It's time for some clear thinking Christianity as we explore an evidential faith in Jesus Christ together. Here's the host of the Please Convince Me podcast, Jay Warner Wallace. If what I think is happening is happening, it better not be. I really appreciate the budding friendship that I'm developing with Jim Wallace, and I also really enjoy and appreciate his show. I listen uh, every week. His show is interesting in that it comes at apologetics from an interesting perspective, that of a, uh, a cold case homicide detective, which in, in certain ways has uh, real particular relevance to, um, uh, to apologetics and to the reliability of the Gospels and stuff like that. So I would definitely th recommend that you check it out. You can find it at pleaseconvinceme.com, please or you can, go, you can find it by searching for Please Convince Me in iTunes tunes in the Zoom marketplace. I've got links to all that in uh, the show notes for this episode. Um, and they've also got a sister site, Answers for Atheists, geared specifically toward atheists seeking answers to their object objections to Christianity. And I've got a link in my show notes to that as well. So I'd encourage you to check that out. Uh, I've interviewed Jim on my show once, uh, some number of months ago. Uh, and I'll be interviewing him in the future as well, Lord willing, on the topic of Christian passive, uh, pacifism. Uh, so it should be interesting. And uh, I guess with that, we'll go ahead and we'll move into today's debate. Whoa, 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 
Okay, everyone. Today, I have the privilege of moderating a debate between Chris State and Joshua Whips on a very important topic that is a subject of continued controversy as we witness to our faith to the world. The resolution that has been agreed upon between Chris and Joshua is as follows. The final punishment of the risen wicked will be annihilation, the permanent end to the conscious existence of the entire person. Chris Date affirms the resolution and Joshua Whips denies it. This will be a very comprehensive debate as the lengthy format agreed upon by the participants is as follows. There will be 20-minute openings for both sides and 10-minute rebuttals. There will be a short break, then 15-minute cross-examinations of both sides and 10-minute rebuttals by both sides. Another break, another um, 15-minute cross-examinations for both sides, and two 8-minute closings, one for each side. Then there will be 30 minutes, questions and answers, consisting of four questions each to each of the participants. The person to whom the um, question is directed to um, will be able to answer with a brief follow-up by the other participant. So now to introduce the participants, Chris Day is the host of the Theopologetics podcast and a contributor to the Preterist blog and podcast and to the brand new RethinkingHell.com blog and podcast. He is a software engineer by trade. He believes theology and apologetics are for the average Joe in the pews and not just for pastors, philosophers, and PhDs, and the erudite in ivory towers. Formerly a traditionalist, he became convinced that annihilation is the biblical view of final punishment as a result of exegesis of the relevant texts and the analogy of scripture. Joshua Whips is 33 years old, husband to Bethany, the father of six children, and attends Grace Fellowship Church in Biloxi, Missouri. He is a Reformed Baptist, adheres to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and has taught apologetics and church history at the local church level, participating in the ministry of choosing hats with the approval of his elders. He blogs at RazorsKiss.net and has contributed to Choosing Hats since November of 2008. He has articles in the In Antithesis Journal and contributed one chapter to the first edition of Jamin Hubner's The Portable Presuppositionalist. He has participated in several formal debates. I know that I speak for the participants when I say that it is the hope that this comprehensive format and debate will be a resource for the Christian community for years to come and will assist in driving us all into the word to examine these things to see whether they be so. So with all that out of the way, I would like to offer a brief prayer and then we will be on to the debate. Father God, we come to you through your son and our savior, Jesus Christ, to ask that you Please bless us with your enlightening spirit as we examine your word today. Please open the hearts of the participants and the listeners to guide us into all truth. And may our words and conduct be pleasing to you this day. Amen. Amen. Okay. Are you guys ready? I'm ready to go. Okay. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> all right. I want I want to thank first and foremost Jesus Christ, who bore the punishment his people deserved in our place, rescuing us from eternal punishment. For whatever the horrifying nature of that punishment, thankfully we won't face it by his grace and mercy. 
Thanks also to my friend uh, who put me in contact with Joshua, and thanks to those friends and listeners who helped me prepare for this debate. Thank you, Didi, for moderating. I also want to thank Joshua for participating and for the passion with which he is treating this topic, for if my position is wrong, my prayer is that the Lord would use him to reveal that clearly to me and everyone listening. I see no injustice in the idea of eternal conscious punishing. I've never found it emotionally or philosophically objectionable. And while I grieve for those who will face God's justice, I praise God for it in whatever form he declares in his word is appropriate. My conversion, if you will, to annihilationism was not due in any part to an emotional response to the traditional view of hell, but the prospect of accepting a view considered heterodoxy or outright heresy by theologians and apologists I respect and admire, well, that was terrifying. I did not want to be an annihilationist. I came to my position kicking and screaming. But early on in my faith, I was taught to subject my emotions, as well as my traditions and the teachings of those I respect most, to the inerrant holy word of God. And the word of God teaches that the final punishment of the risen wicked will be annihilation, the permanent end to the conscious existence of the entire person. I speak of the risen wicked because my opponent and I agree that both those who have been justified and those who remain in their sins will rise bodily from the dead. I'm not affirming or denying anything about what happens prior to that general resurrection in the intermediate state. I say final punishment is the permanent end because I am not arguing that the punishment of the wicked is finite in duration. No, for if it were finite in duration, then by definition it would not be a permanent end. Rather, the end of the sinner is infinite in duration, eternal by definition. I say it is the end of conscious existence because I am not saying that the risen wicked will instantaneously disappear into oblivion. No, the wicked will be executed. They will be violently killed, perhaps leaving behind lifeless, unconscious remains like corpses and ashes. And I say it is the end of the entire person because whatever the soul is and whatever conscious existence it has after the first death of only the body, in the second death, the conscious existence of the whole person will come to a permanent end, both body and soul. In denying this, my opponent will be representing what has become the traditional view of final punishment, which includes, as John Gill explicitly stated, that neither the risen bodies of the wicked nor the souls to which they will be reunited will ever die. By demonstrating that the Bible teaches that both the bodies and the souls of the risen wicked will be killed in hell, I will prove that the debate proposition is true and that my opponent's position is false. As support for certain elements of my case, I will be citing Reformed theologian John Gill and others because my opponent is a fan of some of them, Gill in particular. However, I will be making my case by means of the Holy Scriptures, because as chapter 1, paragraph 10 of the London Baptist Confession of 1689 reads, quote, The supreme judge, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and by which must be examined all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits, can be no other than the Holy Scripture, unquote. You see, the Bible is the perfect guide by which we must test what the majority of imperfect Christians have believed throughout church history. What's more, I agree with the sentiment repeatedly expressed by Dr. James White in his debate on the dividing line with Dr. Michael Brown that our focus should be on texts which specifically address the issue at hand. Therefore, I will be making my case from the most relevant texts, those which actually say something about what awaits the wicked, rather than by drawing tenuous extrapolations from texts which don't. Whatever we think might follow from our interpretations of texts which don't say anything about final punishment, such as what being created in the image of God implies, we need to test them in light of those clearer, more relevant texts which do say something about final punishment. Finally, I will be making my case from texts historically used to support the traditional view of hell. I don't have to reconcile my position with eternal torment proof texts. My position, indeed today's debate thesis, is the teaching of those texts. Perhaps the most contentious of those texts is Matthew 25, 41 to 46, where Jesus says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I agree with proponents of the traditional view of hell that eternal here means for eternity, and that it means the same thing in both eternal life and eternal punishment. What we disagree on is the meaning of punishment. 
Traditionalists see it as suffering forever. Annihilationists see it as the everlasting effect of being executed. Linguists call this a deverbal result noun, a noun referring to the results of its corresponding verb, and it's a phenomenon found both in scripture and in modern language. When Hebrews 5.9 and 9.12 speak of eternal salvation and eternal redemption, they refer to the eternal duration of the result of the transitive verbs save and redeem. After all, Jesus will not be forever saving or redeeming. John Gill, A.W. Pink, Douglas Moo, and Robert Morey all admit this, Moo and Morey further admitting that Hebrews 6.2's eternal judgment refers to the everlasting outcome of being judged. This is true in English as well. John Gill and Jonathan Edwards called the earthly destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah everlasting or eternal. Edwards also called annihilation everlasting, as did Robert Raymond. These three traditionalists meant that the outcome of the verbs destroy and annihilate are eternal in duration. The destruction of those cities is eternal, even though the word destruction has no present referent, and the same would be true of the annihilation of the wicked. My position, therefore, is that punishment in this text is likewise a deverbal result noun, referring to the effect or outcome of the transitive verb punish. This is also how I think it's used in the phrase capital punishment, and I think St. Augustine would have agreed. He wrote, quote, where a very serious crime is punished by death and the execution of the sentence takes only a minute, no laws consider that minute as the measure of the punishment, but rather the fact that the criminal is forever removed from the community of the living, unquote. Because the duration of the final capital punishment is eternal, I'm affirming the obvious parallel between its duration and that of eternal life. But the differences between the nouns punishment and life warrant understanding life to be an event or process noun, as linguists call it, rather than a result one. Unlike punishment, life nominalizes an intransitive verb, and whereas one's punishment may refer to the result that follows being punished, as in the case of capital punishment, life always refers to the period of time one has lived. The nature of the nouns, then, justify understanding the two nouns differently while understanding eternal the same in both. The question, then, is what is the nature of eternal punishment? Is it everlasting conscious suffering in a body and soul which never die? Or is it the permanent end of the conscious existence of the entire person? And the answer is clear from Jesus' reference to the eternal fire, a phrase found in two other places in the New Testament. One of them is Jude 7, where Jude writes that Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude explicitly states that the cities suffered the punishment of eternal fire, as many theologians admit. Hence, the parallel in 2 Peter 2 specifically refers to their having been reduced to ashes. The eternal fire here cannot refer to the intermediate state, for it would render Sodom and Gomorrah ordinary, redundant, and superfluous. Any and all unsaved human beings suffer in the intermediate state, if such a state exists, and Jude and Peter first give other examples of wicked men who would have sufficed to illustrate God's ongoing punishing of the wicked in the intermediate state, were that what Jude has in view. So why did Jude call the fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah eternal fire? Well, Gill and Edwards said that it was because the cities will never be rebuilt. Contemporary traditionalists Kenneth Boa and Rob Bowman say it is because it foreshadowed the truly eternal fire awaiting the wicked. Whatever Jude's reasons, that fire which came down from heaven and which Jude calls eternal fire is not still burning. It is one which swiftly destroyed and has since burned out. The other place eternal fire is used in Matthew 18.8, where Jesus says, It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Jesus' admonition here, recorded also in Matthew 5.30 and Mark 9.43, calls final punishment Gehenna, a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Valley of Hinnom, which was once a place where idol worshippers burned up children as sacrifices to their gods. But Jeremiah 7.32 says Gehenna would become the valley of slaughter. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Isaiah 30 speaks of God's fiery vengeance upon Gehenna, likening it to a funeral pyre, which is a pile of wood for burning up corpses. 
So Jude uses eternal fire to refer to the fire which destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, killing their inhabitants. When Jesus uses it, he has in mind the Valley of Hinnom, a place of slaughter where fire and scavengers consume corpses. What then is the eternal punishment by eternal fire Jesus warns of in Matthew 25, 41 to 46? Being killed, destroyed, and rendered lifeless. Because the final punishment is eternal, those killed in the final punishment will never, ever live again. This is further confirmed by Mark 9.48, which says that in the final punishment of Gehenna, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is virtually quoting Isaiah 66.24, which explicitly says that it is the carcasses of the wicked whose worm will not die and whose fire will not be quenched. Verse 16, having just said those slain by the Lord would be many. The picture here is of the lifeless corpses of men destroyed by fire being consumed by maggots. And Jesus quotes Isaiah's language describing this scene without any hint that he is changing its meaning from lifeless corpses to living bodies. What about unquenchable fire? What's a fire which can't be resisted, one which can't be extinguished before it fully consumes? Ezekiel twenty forty seven says, I am about to kindle a fire in you and it will consume every green tree in you as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched. Jeremiah 17.27 says, I will kindle a fire in its gates and it will devour the places of Jerusalem and not be quenched. Now these aren't saying that trees and buildings will burn forever. When that word rendered devour or consume describes what fire does, it means to burn down completely. Hence even John Gill recognized this as the meaning of the idiom in both these passages, as well as in Isaiah 34.10, 2 Kings 22.17, and Jeremiah 7.20. As for the worm which doesn't die, a moment ago we looked at the similar picture in Jeremiah 7.32 where no one will frighten away scavenging beasts and birds from eating dead bodies. These are idioms depicting the shame in the eyes of others resulting from having one's corpse left exposed and unburied. Neither has anything to do with eternal torment. Jesus' appeal to Isaiah 66.24 is consistent then with the final execution of the wicked but serves as no support for my opponent's position. On April 9th, my opponent cited Matthew 3.12's unquenchable fire in the Alpha and Omega Ministries chat channel as evidence that the risen wicked will provide fuel for the fire forever. Nearly two months later, he wrote instead that this should not be seen as, quote, an empirical scientific method for describing the mechanism of the punishment, unquote. This nuancing of his view is interesting in light of his recent claim that, quote, the necessity for introducing nuance indicates that the prior position held is not, in fact, sound or valid, unquote. In any case, Matthew 3.12 and its parallel in Luke 3.17 are strong support for my view. In both places, Jesus says the chaff will be burned up, the Greek word katakaio literally meaning to burn down completely. It isn't a generic burning, it's a complete consumption by fire. Thayer points out its distinct meaning as evident from its use in Exodus 3.2, where the bush was burning but was not katakaio in the Septuagint, was not consumed. This is why the NASB, which was the translation quoted in channel when my opponent cited it, translates it burn up. Jesus uses katakaio again in Matthew 13:30 and 40 in the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says that just as the tares in the parable are utterly consumed, so too will his angels throw sinners into a furnace of fire, hearkening to Malachi 4's imagery of the wicked being reduced to ashes like chaff in a furnace of fire. Now, whether these various images and idioms of maggot-ridden corpses and unquenchable fire, burning up chaff in a furnace of fire, are to be taken literally or as metaphorically describing the irresistible and utterly consuming wrath of God, they all paint the same picture of the wicked coming to a violent end. They provide no support for my opponent's view that the wicked will suffer forever in immortal bodies and souls, despite having been used historically in that very way. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says those who do not know God will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
earlier I quoted John Gill and Jonathan Edwards who said the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was an eternal destruction because those cities were destroyed and will never be rebuilt. Well, that's essentially what Paul is saying here. The wicked will be destroyed and will never live again. Their destruction is everlasting. Consider that in the preceding verse, or verses depending on the translation, Paul says Jesus will be revealed in flaming fire inflicting vengeance. As traditionalist G.K. Beale points out, quote, Isaiah 66.15 is the only place in the Old Testament where this combination of terms is found, unquote. And both passages talk about God rendering recompense to the saints' oppressors. And how does Isaiah 66 end? Indeed, how does Isaiah end? Well, as we've seen, it ends with the wicked having been reduced to lifeless, smoldering corpses. This is the everlasting destruction Paul says awaits the wicked, being destroyed and rendered lifeless, never to live again. Now, we know that in the first death, it is the body that dies, not the soul. Commenting on James 2.26 as the body without the spirit is dead, John Gill wrote, quote, A body, when the spirit or soul is departed from it, is dead, unquote. Romans 8.10 says the believer's spirit is alive, but that his body is dead. Commenting on which, Gill wrote, quote, This fleshly body shall in a little time die, but the soul of man does not die with the body, unquote. Jesus says in Matthew 10:28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, prompting Gill to write that the soul, quote, is immortal, it survives the body and lives, whilst the body is in a state of death, unquote. But Jesus goes on to say, rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. What men can't do to souls in the first death, namely kill them, God will in the second the word render destroy is frequently a synonym for kill. In fact, with no demonstrable exception, everywhere it's used in the synoptic gospels to describe what one person does to another, it means something like slay or kill. Bodies and souls will both be killed in the final punishment. Hence, we're told in James 5.20 that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. So according to Jesus and James, the bodies and souls of the damned will be killed in the way only the body dies in the first death. A dead body cannot be tormented, and if the soul exists consciously after the first death of only the body, it is because it remains alive in the sense that the body does not. But in the second death, what is true of a dead body will be true of dead souls. Both will be completely devoid of life, unable to be tormented or experience anything at all. This is further demonstrated by the apocalyptic imagery of Revelation, so frequently cited by adherents to the view my opponent holds. Revelation 14, 9-11 portrays smoke rising forever from the torment of the worshippers of the beast who have no rest day or night. But this is symbolic imagery. The ten horns and seven heads of the beast, for example, are interpreted by the angel as symbolizing hills and kings. What, then, does the imagery of smoke rising from torment forever communicate? Well, in chapter 18, the harlot mystery Babylon is tormented as well. But of the city the harlot represents, the interpreting angel says this in verse 21, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And at the beginning of the next chapter, smoke rises forever from the harlot, just like it does from chapter 14's beast worshippers. This not found any longer language comes straight from Ezekiel 26, whose prophecy concerning the destruction of the city of Tyre was fulfilled long ago. You will not be inhabited, you will be no more. Though you will be sought, you will never be found again. And the ever-rising smoke in Revelation 14 and 19 comes straight from Isaiah 34, 8-10, describing the fires which long ago destroyed the city of Edom. It will not be quenched night or day, its smoke will go up forever. You see, Edom is not literally burning to this day. Smoke is not still rising from its remains. The imagery of smoke rising forever communicates the permanency of Edom's destruction and that of Mystery Babylon. Therefore, the smoke of the torment of the beast worshippers rising forever is imagery communicating their permanent destruction. 
Now this brings us to the big one, Revelation 20.10, which says that the devil, beast, and false prophet are tormented day and night forever and ever. And I suppose it's somewhat natural to take it at face value in isolation from the rest of the Bible, ignoring that this is apocalyptic symbolism and come away thinking it supports eternal torment. I know that I certainly used to. Well, we've already seen how Revelation uses the imagery of the harlot's torment to communicate the permanent destruction of the city she represents. The eternal torment of the devil, beast, and false prophet is likewise symbolism communicating their permanent destruction. This is why the beast is seen thrown into the fire. John's readers would have immediately recognized it as the fourth beast of Daniel 7, along with characteristics of the previous three beasts in that, in that vision, imagery foretelling the same events as Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the statue in Daniel 2. Taken at face value, the images contradict one another. The statue was shattered to pieces. Daniel's beast is killed and its body destroyed in a river of fire. John's beast is thrown alive into a lake of fire and tormented eternally. But in the visions in Daniel, the interpreter interprets the fate of the beast or the statue in the imagery as communicating the permanent end to the dominion of the kingdom it represents. Succeeded by the kingdom of the reigning saints, a kingdom John sees as well, immediately after the beast is thrown into the fire. John also sees death and Hades thrown into the fire. Death and Hades are abstractions, incapable of being tormented in reality to begin with. And if we deny that they are tormented in imagery, since John doesn't mention their torment, we can't arbitrarily claim that the risen wicked are tormented, since John doesn't mention their torment either. But these abstractions, death and Hades, can and will come to an end. There's a reason we call it the intermediate state. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says death will be abolished, a word meaning to make completely ineffectual. If death is rendered ineffectual because it's an abstraction, it can't continue to exist powerlessly when no one will experience it again. It will have come to a permanent end. You see, the lake of fire can be treated consistently within Revelation and with Daniel only if we accept that symbolic eternal torment in the imagery represents a permanent end in reality. Death and Hades come to an end. The beast's dominion comes to an end. Consistent application of the imagery demands that the same be true of the devil and the risen wicked. And because the risen wicked are thrown in after having their souls and bodies reunited in resurrection, we know that both the bodies and the souls of the damned will come to a permanent end. Let me close by repeating that my case has been made from most of the text critics of my view point to in support of the traditional view of hell. And let me summarize this case. One, eternal punishment is by means of eternal fire, a phrase referring to fire which utterly destroys and renders lifeless. Two, Jesus' words in Mark 9:48 quote Isaiah 66:24, which explicitly describes corpses whose unquenchable fire and undying worm are idioms the Bible uses to communicate complete consumption and shame in the eyes of others. 3. Jesus says in Matthew 3.12, Luke 3.17, and Matthew 13 that the wicked will be chaffed, burned down completely in a furnace of fire, utilizing the imagery of Malachi 4 where they are reduced to ashes. 4. By hearkening to Isaiah 66.15, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that eternal destruction is being executed never to live again. 5. Matthew 10.28 indicates that whereas only the body dies in the first death, both body and soul will be killed in final punishment. 6. The eternal torment portrayed in the apocalyptic imagery of Revelation symbolically communicates the permanent end of what is seen tormented in fire, the end of death in Hades, the end of the beast's dominion, the end of Satan, and the end of the wicked whose bodies and souls are reunited in resurrection. In light of the utter lack of biblical support for never-ending suffering and living immortal bodies and souls, to whatever extent these various descriptions figuratively depict the end of the wicked, the Bible's repeated and consistent testimony is that the final punishment of the risen wicked will be annihilation, the permanent end to the conscious existence of the entire person. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Chris. Now, Joshua will have a 20-minute um, opening. It's up to you now, Joshua.
Thank you, ma'am. If Mr. Date has followed the text of his previous debate, he has told you that the righteous and wicked will be raised bodily, the righteous granted immortality, the wicked judged by being killed a second time, that punishment varies by their suffering in various degrees before death, after which they will never live again. Death is as a corpse is dead, unconscious, unaware, inactive. He will have told you that all the biblical texts favor his view. What he will not have done, however, is show you that it is impossible to believe otherwise consistently. He will have given you a probabilistic case, not a case for the necessity of his position. My job as an apologist is to argue from the impossibility of the contrary view. I don't know what he considered his job to be, but that isn't what he's done. Note, however, that this time he has the positive case. He must prove that it is impossible to believe anything else consistently. He must prove that only his case fits the text of Scripture, not that there is a mere probabilistic or, or a subjective favoring of it. He stated before the debate that I had the entirety of his positive case, and I proceeded accordingly. However, he has nuanced his view, he says. Why is this? I don't see much of a nuance. Over the past couple of months, I've gone through many of the texts that Mr. Day claims that traditionalists never or almost never have an in-depth exegetical case from. I've done the exegetical work on Mark 9, Isaiah 66, Daniel 12, Jude, 2 Peter 2, and Matthew 25, along with a variety of other texts which relate to the debate. What you will not find from Mr. Day is a similar record of exegetical work on this or pretty much any other subject that I can see. If he is to tell us that his position rests on an exegetical foundation, upon whose exegesis does it rest? That of Edward Fudge? I certainly hope not. His treatment is exceedingly topical, not exegetical. Perhaps that of Ronnie Demler or Joey Deer? Those of you who listen to the pre-debate podcast at Choosing Hats know why such a reliance would be, at best, unwise. Those of you who have not, I commend it to you as further context for this debate. This debate is about the truth, and the truth is what Mr. Date's case revolves around is a particular definition of the word death. This definition entails that death be rendered lifeless or the permanent end of the conscious existence of the entire person. There does, however, seem to be a problem with this explanation in terms of death being used in the present tense, as Mr. Date explained on his program. The explanation offered on his program and affirmed by Mr. Date is that the, these present tense references are what are called prolepsis, or present tense affirmations of a future certainty. To support this contention, Genesis 2.17, Exodus 12.33, and Exodus 10.28 were offered as support then applied to the text of Romans 8 and Ephesians 2, which actually speaks of death in the past tense, though this was not addressed on the show to my knowledge. If the listener would note the text just mentioned, they would see that only the text of Exodus 12 is actually a proleptic statement. Note that the wording of God's warning is much the same as that of Pharaoh's, and that both promise a future consequence to immediately follow the forbidden action. The text is not speaking proleptically, it is speaking promissorily. While God's promises surely come to pass, at least on the basis of Reformed doctrine, Pharaoh's promise is proven to be false by God, whom Pharaoh has set himself against as God ordained for his own glorious justice. God's warning to Pharaoh that he must let his people go is shown to be paramount, for God's victory is complete. Not only this, but the explanation offered in terms of Romans 8 and Ephesians 2 seems to be even more problematic. The answer tendered in regards to Romans 8 is that surely we cannot be considered to be glorified now. Thus the death being, being spoken of as presently, ap, um, presently applicable cannot be considered to be the case either. Yet where does this statement occur? At the end of the golden chain of redemption. We were just told in this very chapter that we are fellow heirs with Christ. Do we not become heirs until later? What does the text say? Verse 16, it says that we are children of God. If children, then heirs also. Next verse. What else? We suffer with him. That what? We may also be glorified with him. In the future? Is the suffering in the future? Now, I can imagine the immediate response is that the next verse says, to be revealed. What sort of revelation do we have? 
progressive revelation. What do we believe about the relationship of eschatology to soteriology? There is an already as well as a not yet, as all of Reformed theology affirms. We are glorified and will be glorified. We are sanctified and are being sanctified. We are seen as just, but we have not been declared, we have not yet been declared just on the last day. We see this throughout Romans 8. It's even worse in texts where it's considered in the past tense. We were just told a few chapters previously that we have been justified. Romans 6 through 7 and Ephesians 2 speak of us having been dead, but now being made alive. With his proleptic view, such statements made absolute absurdity out of systematic theology. All I could think of when I examined this was that these are to be taken as emphatic prolepsis or something of the sort. In that case, however, you still have to deal with made alive to be something only considered to be after the first death. This isn't the only problem, however. Not merely in definitional terms, but in ontological terms. What is death? Mr. Date has to deal with the nature of sin which brought forth death. Sin, as we know, is not something of itself. It is a corruption of righteousness. If he'd like to challenge this, he's welcome to do so. But he'd have to explain how sin has an analogy in the being of God as a created thing, underivative of righteousness, which does not have its analogy in God. Central to orthodoxy is that creation is analogous to its creator. No rightful basis in the creator, no rightful basis as ontologically natural. Sin steals from righteousness as unbelief steals from belief in order for its worldview to survive. Sin is a parasite. It is unnatural. That which is born of a thing has the same nature as the parent. It is not the absence of life in view. It is the corruption of life. A corrupted life, which as I hope Mr. Date would continue to affirm, is totally depraved. This is what is meant when talking about total depravity. There is nothing to this life which escapes that depravity. Corrupted life is death. And that is intrinsic to what historical theology has always said that death is meant. Death, by its very nature, is depraved, corrupted life. This corrupted life ends bodily in the event of death, the separation of spirit from body. This is one of several places where the paradigm changes. It actually changes prior in regeneration for the believer. Romans 6 and 7 detail this paradigm shift in some detail, as do the many passages speaking of renewal or new life. This is a present reality, even though it also has future fulfillment. Unfortunately, the problems in their view do not end even here. Any mention of terms like destruction, consumed, slain, or no more throughout the scriptures are considered to be descriptive of the same rendered lifeless. As I've argued in my treatments of their favorite text, this idea simply cannot be reconciled to the text of scripture. First, there's the problem with their view of death. As both Mr. Date and his friends have mentioned on the show, his view is essentially that of an atheist in regard to what death is and means. He has even used this as an argument to support his position. What he seems to be doing is borrowing from unbelieving naturalism for his view of death, then attempting to use scripture to flesh that out. This is problematic in a myriad of ways. Second, there is the problem with his hermeneutic in general. The New Testament is what interprets the Old. In many cases, it seems that the first recourse he has is to the Old Testament's language regarding death, with the language used taken in purely empirical terms, and then the Old Testament's language is then said to be merely quoted by the NT. While this is simply not the case at all, his view also seems to ignore that it is the New Testament that determines how the Old Testament is to be interpreted at the highest level. The New Testament has a fairly comprehensive view of death and speaks of the nature of death often. The only attempt made by Mr. Date to explain the usages of death which seem to differ from his position is the highly suspect use of prolepsis previously discussed. Also troubling to me is the lack of engagement with biblical and systematic theology evinced by his position. How are we to understand concepts like union with Christ, sanctification, justification, predestination, glorification, regeneration, propitiation, atonement, or the active and passive obedience of Christ? 
How are we to reconcile his position on the nature of the final punishment with the doctrines of Chalcedon? He purports to differ from Fudge, who says that all of Christ's humanity did indeed suffer annihilation. But what reason does he have for doing so? When speaking of union with Christ, if we are not considered dead in any sense prior to the first death event, or if death is not to be considered something rendered powerless by the death of Christ, as he agreed to on his program, then what is meant when we say that we are united with him in the likeness of his death in Romans 6, 5? If we are dead only proleptically, then how are we being renewed day by day, even though the outer man is decaying? What are we to say of being perfected by the Spirit? What in reality is wrong with us if we were not dead in our trespasses, but then made alive together with Christ? We are sanctified and we are being sanctified. We were dead and the outer man is still dead and still dying, but the spirit, that is the inner man, is being renewed day by day. We are being perfected. How are we to speak of justification of life if we are not considered dead? How can we say you have been justified under their view? Take regeneration. How is a man who is not dead in any sense resurrected or raised to walk in newness of life or made alive together with Christ? How are we to make sense of Romans 6 through 8 in their view? This is just an incredibly quick overview of these subjects and the problems their view seems to raise in regards to them. But still, brothers and sisters, the problems do not end even here. I could multiply the theological problems inherent with this view of death, but suffice it for me to cite the various articles I've written on the topic in preparation, as well as the response podcast we did in, to reply to some of these issues, which he didn't respond to in, this, in his opener at all. The problems inherent in the system are legion, and they must be answered satisfactorily or the view recanted. Most problematic to me, given my high interest in the subject of theology proper, were the comments of his pro, on his program concerning the nature of God. First, his nature is just, and second, his nature as infinite. It was suggested that only on the conditionless view would God actually be just, as keeping sinners actively under punishment for eternity would be tantamount to dualism. I'm sorry, but this objection is absurd on a number of levels. First, this assumes that sin is equal ontologically and dualistically to righteousness. Sin, however, is the corruption of righteousness, the imperfection of it. He often says that death is the effect as well as the punishment. That's all well and good, but it depends on what is meant by death. Does, does it? If death is corrupted life and your status as a dead man is that of a corruptedly living person, then consignment of you to that status under the wrath of God is hardly dualism, which considers sin and righteousness as equal but opposite states. Again, sin as well as the result in death are parasitic. They are a false righteousness and a false life. Compare this with false knowledge, false sons, false balances, false circumcision, false beliefs, false words, false prophets, false apostles, or false Christs. All of the things just mentioned are sinful, lesser, imperfect, and corrupt images of reality. They presuppose that which they deny and thus engage in self-destruction. The lesser image, the curtailed definition of that which is biblically called death, being presented to us by Mr. Date, is an imperfect corrupt version of how scripture describes it. It is incomplete, and that very lack is what causes it to, to self-destruct, causes arguments built upon it to self-destruct. He's telling us about the facts. The facts is facts is facts. We're talking about the meaning of the facts. His definition of death is not what scripture teaches. It cannot account for the scripture's usage of death, nor is it that which Toda Scriptura outlines for us. It is impossible for it to account for what Scripture teaches because Scripture defines it as much more than Mr. Date defines it to be. 
What of infinitude? Are to we believe that like something infinitely round, infinite holiness is something incomprehensible or absurd? Well, let me give Mr. Data shock. Yes, it is incomprehensible, but not in the sense that was intended in that quote. It is not incomprehensible as inf- infinitely round is. This denies the transcendent nature of God and makes him naturally imminent rather than imminent by condescension. God is transcendent, thus incomprehensible of himself, but is made comprehensible to us via revelation, appropriate to our nature as creatures. God is not infinite like anything else. Everything else is infinite, is finite, related to him, analogically. There can only be one infinite, God himself. Creation necessarily is infinite. God created all things. God is, however, incomprehensible and infinite. We cannot understand him directly. We understand him by analogy, as he has revealed himself to us. We know him by self-revelatory analogy. This all goes back to your understanding of theology proper. If God is all that scripture says he is, we must think of him as he says we are to think of him in those scriptures. Scripturally, God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and truth. As uncreated spirits, ase, timeless, and sovereign, he is Without beginning or end, immaterial, invisible, simple, is so of himself, apart from, and in control of time and all things. And he is all of these infinitely. This is, of course, only a short list. If you wish to examine in more depth, I'd be more than happy to do so. However, I make this point to underline that as God is holy and infinitely so, he is also just as well as gracious and infinitely so. His Mercy is infinite, as is his wrath. It was this wrath which the Son took upon himself in our stead, and his holiness that rests on us in the reciprocal act of substitution. He is our righteousness, as well as our propitiation. The mercy which we receive is predicated on Christ actually being victorious, Christus Victor, now. Not later, not at some later date, but now. And the benefits extend back to the Old Testament saints, as well as to us in the New Covenant. Death is rendered powerless by Christ, for he was victorious. Death, however, is not the mere act of rendering lifeless. Death is the result of the curse and the child of sin. Owen's great work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, is aptly titled, because in his death and bloodletting, Christ killed sin and death, which no longer has any power over us. This great reconciliation, however, was only possible if the justice of God was actually satisfied in his death. To return again to Mr. Date's position, why should he not accept Mr. Mr. Fudge's view of what Christ underwent in death, given his definition of death? If the second death is rendering lifeless both body and soul, as he asserts, what did Christ bear on our behalf? The answer he gave to me before this debate will not suffice here. If Christ is truly united in his humanity, soul and spirit with the divine nature, on what grounds does Date assert that his spirit as well as his body did not die? If, as he has asserted, he doesn't know whether physicalism is true, further, how does he know whether or not Christ's death was contra calcedon? I don't see how he can say either way. Further, not being able to do so is more than a little problematic when you're teaching publicly and engaging in public debate on the subject, is it not? In fact, what can Christ said to have borne on our behalf? Yes, yes, to quote him, he bore God's wrath in place of his elect, his rage, displeasure, indignation, anger. But what is that rage, displeasure, indignation, anger, or etc.? 
As I have outlined, that wrath of God is like a consuming fire, not a specimen in some empirical fashion or seen like an atheist would, but in that it rages, is unstoppable, cannot be resisted. It is talking about God, not about the process of destruction in an empirical sense. Speaking about Matthew 3 and my comments in there, what I meant was that the fuel of God's fire is those whom he is burning, who are being consumed by God's fire. It envelops them. They cannot escape it. That is why they're fuel. The fuel never goes out. It is not quenched because God's fire cannot be quenched. It cannot be extinguished. It will not be extinguished because they are confirmed in their death, which is the corruption of righteousness, which is the corruption of life following sin, which is the corruption of righteousness. This is not seen like an atheist would, but in that it rages, is unstoppable, cannot be resisted. It's talking about God, not about the process. In the case of Christ, it's not merely that it's falling upon the sun that renders it a fitting sacrifice, but that he drank that cup of wrath to the dregs. The wrath and death, that wrath-bearing that Christ did, is inseparable. They're all part of the same thing, becoming a curse for us. An imputation, being made like his brethren. He stood in our stead, taking all the wrath of God upon himself. The entirety of it, down to the dregs of that foaming cup. His death sealed the covenant of grace on our behalf and was witnessed as voluntary. He laid his own life down. Even the centurion noted this. He saw the way he breathed his last and noted that truly this was the Son of God. It was not taken from him and he was not slain. He was not killed, rendered lifeless, not in the same way. Yet he died the death that all men die. He rendered himself lifeless. His human soul was separated from his human body, but of his own volition. Note, his wrath-bearing was not the cause of death. Think of that and think biblically of that. Christ's life was not taken from him. Nothing in the world could have killed him. He gave it up so that we might live. He bore all the penalty of our sin in his own body on the tree. They were imputed to him, and he bore all that was due. He sealed that propitiation with his death, and by his stripes we are healed. By his blood we are justified. By his death he justified the ungodly. What is death, Mr. Date? Mr. Date has the positive case. It is up to him to explain how a sacrifice consisting solely of being rendered lifeless is even intelligible. It is up to him to explain how his prior statements are to be reconciled. It is up to him to explain what he has confidently asserted does not tear scriptural doctrinal affirmations asunder and render Christian belief impossible as we have shown that they do. Citing facts as if they are brute facts does not give us an answer. Citing them as brute facts does not give them give us an answer. We, the debate is about the meaning of the facts, not the facts as brute facts. That is what I challenge Mr. Date to present us. We need to know what they mean. We need to know what all these things mean. He tells us what they are and then keeps saying what they are. Why? Where does he exegete the text to tell us why they must mean this? Why did he not answer all of the exegesis that I have provided? That's all I have for you. I pray that as you look through the rest of his uh, comments that you would keep that in your mind, that you would understand that we're not debating the facts. 
We're debating the meaning of the facts. There aren't two alternate interpretations which might both be possible. There's only one possible. And we must, we must be able to explain the meaning as well as the facts themselves. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Joshua. Now Chris will have 10 minutes for his affirmative rebuttal. Okay, Chris? Ever since Seitz and Rugenkate so impressed me way back in episode three, I've been saying that I tend to favor presuppositional apologetics. I must admit, however, that if the terribly poor quality of my opponent's case today and leading up to today is indicative of the quality of presuppositional argumentation in other areas, well, then I'll have to reconsider presuppositionalism altogether. Simply saying that the contrary to one's position is impossible does not make it so, and my opponent has failed to demonstrate that my case is unsound in any way, let alone impossible, and he's presented a very weak case for the traditional view if he's presented one at all. Now, he said that I didn't respond to his uh, case in my opener. Well, that's because it's my opener. Now, in the, 10 minutes I don't, uh, in the 10 minutes I have now, I don't have time to fully address everything my opponent said, but I'd like to address three issues in this first rebuttal. First, the nature of God. Wayne Grudem includes unity or simplicity in his list of God's attributes, and when you read through the other attributes he lists, you'll notice that they all share something in common. God is always and simultaneously all those things, always independent, always unchangeable, always eternal, omnipresent, simple, spiritual, invisible, omniscient, and always a host of other attributes. They, they are essential or intrinsic to God's nature. But there are a few exceptions. Grudem defines God's mercy as, quote, God's goodness toward those in misery and distress, unquote. He defines God's grace and patience as how God is good toward those deserving of punishment. But in eternity past and after creation prior to the first sin, there was no misery and distress, no one deserving of punishment. These can't be essential or intrinsic attributes of God, like eternality, love, and so forth, since there was a time when God did not exhibit them. It's no wonder, then, that Gudum says, quote, God's mercy, patience, and grace may be seen as specific aspects of God's goodness, unquote. Now consider God's wrath. Grudem defines it as God's intense hatred of sin. Well, how could he intensely hate sin and express his wrath in eternity past and before the first sin when no, one, no sin had yet been committed and there was no one to whom to direct his wrath? And so I think of these attributes not as essential or intrinsic attributes of God, but as the extrinsic expressions of other intrinsic attributes. K. Scott Oliphant, in his book, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, argues exactly that. Quote, it is important to understand that certain of God's characteristics are byproducts of who he is in relation to his creation. Other attributes of God are a part of who he is, apart from the creation. God's wrath is like his mercy. It is an attribute that was neither needed nor present before the creation of the world. It is an aspect of God's character that flows from his holiness, unquote. Reformed theologian Charles Hodge didn't include wrath as an attribute of God, listing it instead as expressions of his justice and holiness. God is eternally just and holy, but that doesn't require that he express his wrath throughout eternity. Okay, but what about God as infinite and as actus purus? Well, even if God isn't intrinsically wrathful, wouldn't his wrath as the extrinsic expression of his holiness be necessarily infinite and thus everlasting? No, for that would require that mercy go on eternally as well. But like Grudem, Hodge defines mercy as, quote, kindness exercised towards the miserable and includes pity, compassion, forbearance, and gentleness, unquote. And after the elect are glorified, they will experience no misery, will require no pity, compassion, forbearance, or gentleness. And as A.W. Pink points out, quote, there will be no mercy extended to them beyond the grave, the wicked, that is, unquote. So in the eternal state, God will not express mercy. Therefore, he need not eternally express wrath either. 
Second, the nature of death. My opponent has argued that I presuppose a materialist understanding of death, but that's false. I don't presuppose a materialist understanding of death. I use the familiar atheist understanding of death to illustrate what the Bible says will happen in the second death. And that's a conclusion I come to about the second death based on the text of Scripture, which teaches that both body and soul will die in the second death in the way that only the body dies in the first death. My opponent has argued that annihilationism relies upon a false understanding of death, which fails to account for all that Scripture teaches about death. But even if one accepts my opponent's case that death is a corrupted version of ongoing life that resulted from the fall, and we'll talk about that in a moment, that would not at all pose a challenge to our view. When the body dies, it doesn't go on in a corrupted state of life called death. It ceases to be living altogether, ceases to be animated. And Jesus says that the soul will die in Gehenna in the way only the body dies in the first death. If my opponent is right about one meaning of death in scripture, he commits the fallacy of illegitimate totality transfer by suggesting that's what death always means. My opponent has also argued that we deny the reality of regeneration, seemingly because my friends and I suggested that when scripture calls the living dead in the present tense, it proleptically refers to future death, and so therefore we must say regeneration is proleptic as well. But if scripture calls a living person dead proleptically, referring to the inevitable death that awaits him on account of his being guilty and separated from God, then the change of heart God works in the elect, resulting in faith and justification, would lead inevitably to future resurrection unto eternal life, and thus the one who is regenerated could be said proleptically to have come to life. Alternatively, in answering my opponent's exploratory questions, I suggested that the lifelessness of death is used as an analogy or metaphor for describing one's lack of life in God, spiritual death, if you will. If that's the case, one's being given a new heart that seeks God and desires to do good, and the restoration of one's fellowship with God could likewise be described using the analogy of having come to life. In fact, in his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem writes, quote, We did not choose to be made physically alive, and we did not choose to be born. It is something that happened to us. Similarly, these analogies in Scripture suggest that we are entirely passive in regeneration, unquote. Now, having refuted my opponent's argument from the nature of death, the question remains just what is death? In the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia's entry on death, Herman Bavink says that the curse in the first place brought about bodily death, suggesting that Genesis 2.17's in the day is used proleptically. Bavink says this, quote, places a close connection between man's death and his transgression of God's commandment and is the fundamental thought of the whole of scripture and forms an essential element in the revelations of salvation, unquote. He cites Romans 5.12 as one of several examples of scripture identifying bodily death as the punishment for sin. And where Paul says in verses 13 to 14 of that chapter that death reigned from Adam to Moses, Wayne Grudem correctly points out that, quote, the fact that they died is very good proof that God counted people guilty on the basis of Adam's sin, unquote. When it comes to so-called spiritual death, however, John Gill wrote that, quote, the soul is not capable of death, that is, in a natural and proper sense. It is capable of dying in a figurative sense, a moral or spiritual death, unquote. Albert Barnes concurs, commenting on Ephesians 2.1's, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, saying, quote, they were dead in relation to that to which they afterward became alive, i.e. to holiness, in relation to real spiritual life they were in consequence of sin, like a dead man in regard to the objects which are around him, unquote. Herman Bobbink said, quote, the physical contrast between life and death gradually makes way for the moral and spiritual difference between a life spent in the fear of the Lord and a life in the service of sin, unquote. So what is death? It's the curse of an end to physical life as a consequence of the fall or the subsequent lifelessness, and it's used figuratively to refer to a life spent apart from God. Third, the nature of the atonement. As I mentioned in my opening, traditionalists do not believe that the bodies of the wicked will die in Gehenna. They explicitly state as much, and yet Jesus' body did die. So traditionalists cannot argue against annihilationism on the grounds that what Jesus bore doesn't match identically what we say the wicked will face, since they don't believe that Jesus bore what will match what the wicked will face. And since scripture makes it clear that it is primarily the bodily death of Christ that atones for sin in places like 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Peter 3.18, for example, then regardless of the differences between Christ's death and that of the wicked and final punishment, the bodily death of the wicked 
wicked in Gehenna is far more consistent with the substitutionary bodily death of Christ than the traditional view in which the bodies of the wicked will never die. On the other hand, what if I were to say that Christ's human soul did die with the death of his body? The claims sometimes made by traditionalists that our view is that Christ ceased to exist for three days and that we either break the hypostatic union or turn the Trinity into a binity are simply false. Christ's body was dead for three days, but did it cease to exist? No. Likewise, if Christ's human soul was dead for three days in the way the souls of the wicked will die in Gehenna, must it have ceased to exist? No. Any claims of the contrary would be pure philosophical speculation. And besides, the scripture says Christ's body was uniquely preserved, not allowed to see decay. So it's quite conceivable that God would have preserved the dead human soul of Christ as well. So we're certainly not breaking the hypostatic union if we say Jesus' divine nature lived on, for the natures were still united even if one nature was dead in both body and soul. And proponents of the physicalist or monist view could respond similarly. Of course, some annihilationists would also say that in some sense Jesus' divine nature died as well, but I'll leave it to them for, to defend. I'm comfortable enough with Grudem's words in his systematic theology when he said that, quote, by virtue of union with Jesus' human nature, his divine nature somehow tasted of what it was like to go through death. The person of Christ experienced death, even though Jesus' divine nature did not actually die. Jesus went through the experience of death as a whole person, and both human and divine nature somehow shared in that experience. Beyond that, scripture does not enable us to say more, unquote. But what of the eternal punishment of being killed never to live again? How did Jesus bear that punishment as our substitute? It's quite simple. The eternality of the punishment is measured in that the risen wicked will die and never rise again for eternity. Jesus, however, bore that punishment by remaining dead for a finite span of three days. Just as traditionalists often argue with respect to his finite amount of suffering on the cross, by virtue of being both human and divine, Jesus bore an eternal punishment in a finite amount of time spent in the grave. So, the nature and attributes of God, the nature of death, and the nature of the atonement serve as utterly no challenge to my view whatsoever. And in many ways, they are far more consistent with today's debate thesis, despite my opponent's repeated claims of the contrary. In my second rebuttal, I'll try to respond to what little else there was to respond to uh, in, in what I wasn't able to respond in this rebuttal. Thank you. Okay, now, uh, thank you, Chris. Um, now, Joshua will have 10 minutes for his negative rebuttal. Okay, Joshua. Thank you, Didi. Um, in his reply, he brought up that my um, opening statement was of terribly poor quality. Okay. Um, what sort of uh, what sort of thing do you think is terribly good quality? Um, then he says he needs he might need to reconsider precept because you know simply saying it does not make it so. Um, that's probably one of the most common um, objections to presuppositionalism and one of the most easily rebutted because that's not what we're doing. I made an argument, but instead of addressing the arguments that I've been making for the last two months, he just said that's not what I mean. Okay, well tell us why. Why? I don't understand <laughs> why this is considered to be an argument to say, no, it isn't. See, on the one hand, Chris is talking about that we are just saying that, you know, that this is so. Well, th on, on the other hand, he's saying that this is, th that he's just saying it and this is what's making it so. He's not exegeting the text that he's referring to. Um, for instance, when you talk about the impossibility of the contrary, you're not talking about just a simple, um, I presuppose this, therefore it must be true. We're talking about, we, 
what the preconditions for the intelligibility of your view are. But instead of addressing the meaning of the facts, he just says, no, this is what they mean, and no, what he says about the meaning of the facts isn't right because it can't be. I mean, his response to my case was that he says this, but it can't mean that, so we'll just respond and say, um, no, what it actually means is that they'll be annihilated forever, so therefore that can't be correct. Okay, that's great. But where's the response? Then he goes to Wayne Grudem in Simplicity, talks about the um, – they're always and simultaneously all these attributes. Then he says mercy is an exception. Yes, a lot of people do make that as an exception. But if he had read the material that I have written about the subject, I demonstrate that it's not. But he didn't deal with any of it. He just gave the same argument that I responded to in all of these um, responses about mercy and about wrath and about – um, these things that he says are in extrinsic expressions of, that's a common statement. But notice what Chris did. When he talks about how God is, he's talking about the economic expression of God in time. And that is supposed to determine whether God is eternally this. However, God does not exist in time. If you say that well, that couldn't have happened because God could, God didn't do that. That can't be the case about God because God didn't do this before. What did you just presuppose? That God lives in time. God does not live in time. God is eternal. God is timeless. Since he is timeless, you can't say that um, because these expressions did not happen prior to this, that God can't be that way of himself. Ah, say. That's not possible. If God is of himself holy, if God is actus purus, that which God is, is what he does, then you're saying God is wrathful. God is merciful. Because there is no difference in God, because there is no change in God between this time and this time as far as expressed on the earth because God does not live on the earth, does not live in creation, and is not part of creation. God is above, transcendent to, and separate from creation. Go back to Van Til's two circles. Chris is putting everything into one circle, which is the non-Christian worldview. In the Christian worldview, there is God in the one circle. There is the one-way revelation down to the second circle, which is creation. God is not in the second circle. God is not um, circumscribed by time. God's nature is not circumscribed by time. God's nature is not changed by the expression of what he does, the, um, the results of the expression of what he does. This is very similar to his problem with the nature of death. He keeps putting the result as equal to the actuality of it. When he says that the result of punishment is the same as the punishment itself, that's not correct. There is the person punishing and there is the person being punished. Now, when we're talking about eternal punishment, he's presupposing that eternal punishment is always referring to that the one being punished. But because it's saying eternal punishment, we get 
we get the idea here that it's not talking about the one being punished. It's talking about the one punishing. God, as God, punishes, and he punishes completely, eternally, omnipotently. There is no escape from it. There is no possible escape from it. That is why he is called the consuming fire. There is no one who can stand up to this. We're not talking about some um, immanentistic God in time doing all that he all that he desires to do while living in time, and then you know he changes from you know this eternal um, this eternally transcendent God. You know, as soon as he deals with creation, then all of a sudden he's in time. He is now um, he is now essentially imminent instead of essentially transcendent. God's imminence is by condescension. It's by revelation. It's by self-expression. The results of that are in time. This is how we distinguish between first and second causes when we're talking in, in, in other fields. But as soon as you lose that, lose that whole, whole perspective there, you're not talking about the same God anymore. You're not. This is the same problem that Van Til had with Barth. This is the same problem that Van Til had with um, other people who brought God into immanentistic categories. With Barth, it was in all transcendent categories. With Barth, there was no immanence. And with, um, with the Roman Catholics, there was no transcendence. God was always in time. That's the problem with the regular um, standard arguments that are neutrally presented, as if all of that, all of which God does, is within time and is all there in the same circle. It doesn't work that way. We're not talking about God who has, who changes from being God um, unmerciful and then God merciful. No, we're talking about different objects in time of God's essential mercy and God's essential wrath. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about God himself changing. That is the problem with this whole idea. If you don't address that, you're not addressing who God is. And we can talk about that being some ivory tower thing. I'm a layman too. But I can read this. I can understand this. This is what Gill teaches. This is what Calvin teaches. That God is of himself a God of wrath, a God of mercy. Because it's, in, it's intrinsically connected with his holiness. Now, he talks about regeneration and all these things. Well, you know, this, this whole, whole proleptic counter doesn't really address that. Yes, it does. Because if you're talking about regeneration, you're not talking about something which happens later. You're not talking about something which, which is only um, symbolically occurring now. You're talking about an actual new heart in the believer where he once before was totally depraved and now he is being sanctified. That is now. That is not later. That is not after death. That is now. When we're talking about justification, that's not something that happens later. That's not something that is only analogically con- – that's only symbolically considered. That's something that is actually considered. We are justified. We are being justified as well. This is the already not yet. He still didn't address that. I, like, like he said, he can talk about whatever he wants in his opening statement. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But his, um, if he hasn't addressed what I've said before this, 
he's going to have to address it sometime. Now, he can say that I didn't make an argument, it was a bad argument, whatever he would, li- he would like to do, but if you don't address the meaning of the facts, you aren't addressing the facts. You're just talking, talking past each other. That's all it is. I don't know what else I can tell him to try and get this meaning to him, but we can't just sit here and throw facts at each other because it, we're just going to take it, throw it over our shoulder. We have to address the meaning of the facts. Thank you. Okay, I think we are now at our break. All right, well, that was part one of my debate with Joshua Whips on Annihilation. Uh, it concluded our opening arguments and first rebuttals. Uh, in part two, in a couple of days, you'll get to hear our cro- first cross-examination and second rebuttals. Until then...